0: This is the story of the prodigal son from Luke chapter 15 verses 11 through 32. My father had two sons. One day I, the younger son, said to him, Father, give me my share of the property. So my father divided the estate between the two of us. A few days later, I turned my share into cash and left home with the money. I went to a country far from home where I wasted my money in reckless living I spent everything I had. When I had nothing left, a severe famine gripped the country and began and I began to feel the pinch. So I went to work for a local landowner who sent me out to work to work in his farm and to take care of his pigs. I wished I could have filled myself with the bean pods the pigs are eating, but nobody gave me anything to eat. Then at last I came to my senses. I said to myself, All my father's hired laborers have more than I can eat, and here I am about to starve. I'll pack my bags and I'll go back to my father and tell him that I have sinned against God and against him. I'll tell him that I'm not fit to be called his son. I'll ask him to treat me like one of his laborers. So I got up and started back to my father.
1: He was still a long way off when I saw him. And my heart went out to him. So I ran and threw my arms around him and kissed him. The boy said to me, Father, I have sinned against God and against you. I am no longer fit to be called your son. But I called my servants. Bring the best robe and put it on him, I said. Put a ring on his finger and shoes on his feet. Get the prized calf and kill it. And let's celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine was dead, but now he's alive. He was lost, but now he's found. And then the fun began. All this time, I was out in the field. On my way back, as I came close to the house, I heard music and dancing. So I called one of the servants and asked him, what's this all about? Your brother has come back home, he said. So your father has killed the prize calf because he's got him back safe and sound. I was so livid that I wouldn't go into the house. Then my father came out and begged me to go in. Listen to me, I said to him, you know that I've worked like a slave for you for years, and I've never disobeyed your orders. But what have you ever given me? Not even a goat I could kill for a feast with my friends. But this son of yours turns up after wasting all your money on his women. And what do you do? You kill the prized calf for him. Listen, son, my father said, you're always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be happy today. Your brother here was dead, but now he's alive. He was lost, but now he's found.
2: So this morning we come to this very familiar parable about the prodigal son. In fact, it's probably so many of our favorites, right? Well, many of us probably would call it our favorite. And Parables are great uh, for preachers because they're kind of automatically allegorical as you look at them you you feel pretty free to explore the possible meanings without feeling like you're distorting something in fact a a friend of mine reminded me this week uh, Sean Brown who's a great biblical scholar in his own right just a young guy who's hasn't even finished seminary yet but mind like wow anyway he reminded me that CH Dodd an expert in the parables suggested that parables are less about the meaning and more about the exploration that the parable stimulates. And uh, Dodd felt that parables had the same theme of the nature of the kingdom of God, but that the real value of the parable was its pro- provocation into engagement. In other words, it's about the conversation that parables spark up about the kingdom of God. And in every... In every parable, there's a few ridiculous ideas. Uh, for example, a shepherd leaving 99 sheep in order to go find one. just doesn't even make sense. And that would around the dinner table, that would spark conversation and maybe even arguments. And he said this. he says, "At its simplest, the parable is a metaphor or simile drawn from nature or common life. Arresting the hearer by its vividness or strangeness, and leaving the mind in sufficient doubt about its precise application to tease it into active thought, in other words they 're meant to stimulate the conversation and get us talking about the nature of the kingdom of god and and so there 's really what 's nice about it is there 's really no right answer right <laughs> we can We can have all kinds of uh, conversation about it. But the thing about parables I, that I find exciting as well is that there's all, you're always finding yourself in the middle of them. Somewhere in the parable, it, you are there. It, you are the object of the parable in some fashion. And furthermore, God is there somewhere. So you can always, whenever you read a parable, you got to ask the question, who is God in this Parable, or or in the Christian tradition, who is Jesus in proxy for God, uh, and who are we? Who am I in this parable? Because those are always going to be two of the chara- the two of the characters in this parable uh, of the prodigal son. Uh, it's almost obvious that the father is God right the father the loving father who embraces the prodigal son as he has wandered off and squandered all of his money and then the question becomes are we the the irresponsible, sinning, uh, thoughtless young son who runs off and squanders his money on sex and drugs and rock and roll, or are we the responsible older son who does everything he's told and follows the rules and is filled with resentment about the, the younger son? Uh, in this case, Matt and Nick, right? <laughs> who, uh, who, uh, well cast, I'm sure, in, in that regard. So who, <laughs> who will, who are we in this thing? But uh, I read a blog this week, David Jensen, and and I don't know who David Jensen is, except he went to the same school I did, so he's got to be, you know, brilliant. In um, his in his blog he suggests that perhaps jesus uh, or god by proxy is the prodigal son and we are either the resentful son or the father who rejoices and embraces and i man i was dwelling on this idea i thought what a what an interesting idea. I was intrigued by this as I thought about how Jesus had, in the eyes of the religious establishment, squandered his time with sinners and prostitutes, had left the orthodox ways of doing things and embrace this life out among the lowest of the low and probably Jesus was not the dutiful son who followed the rules but the rebellious one who abolished the rules and said those rules don't apply anymore and the Pharisees along with everyone who heard Jesus were invited to accept the message of new life Jesus brought or reject it and pass him off as a blasphemer who dishonored the traditions maybe God is the prodigal son and we have a choice we can either resent Jesus pointing to a new way of life tearing down the old ways and replacing them with a broader more expansive more grace-filled Kingdom of God which we being our human nature we resist that We would much rather Jesus didn't point to the problems in the world, but pointed out how great we are versus the evil of everyone else. Or So are we the resentful son? Or are we the father who rejoices when the son comes home? When God brings us all these new ideas and these new facets, these new experiences, and invites us into a new way of life interesting ideas I think but the other thing I wanna ask about the parable is: you gotta wonder okay who is the audience here as Jesus is speaking this parable who is hanging around and listening to them now we didn't cover that in this in this reading but if you go a few verses earlier we see that the Pharisees are there and the Pharisees are trying to trip him up are trying to catch him doing something stupid and are trying to figure out a way to stop Jesus from declaring His Kingdom of God stuff all around to everybody. And so it is the Pharisees, it is the, the uh, Jewish aristocracy, it was the holders of power that Jesus is speaking to as He speaks this parable about a son who runs off and then returns and is embraced And about an older brother who is so filled with resentment, he can't even enter the house. It is really being directed at the one who represents that. Quite frankly, this older brother, I think he has a point, don't you, if we really, if we you know take it out of the Bible for a moment and we think about it and we think well you know he kinda has a point this fellow did all that was right did everything by the book and uh, you know here was this here he followed the rules he honored his father and his mother he worked hard and his brother squandered his life and now he wants it back and this does doesn't seem right in the world we live in we live in a one in a world where punishment And consequences of one's sinfulness need to be uh, met with. That justice is served by punishment. We live in a world where retribution is how things are made right. You have wronged me? Well, I want it made right by costing you something on your own. Whether it's money or dignity or something else. We are wronged. Someone is punished. Justice is served. That's the world we live in. Someone is killed, we take their life in exchange. Justice is served. And we've been trained to understand justice in this way. And quite frankly, it makes sense. Who wouldn't want justice when a drunk driver runs into someone we love? Who wouldn't want retribution? Who wouldn't want them to pay and to feel pain? And to experience loss in the way we have experienced loss. That's the world we live in. But there's a problem. There's a problem. Making Taking the life of that person doesn't bring our loved one back. It never quite satisfies. It never quite Brings things into rightness. It just doesn't do it. I've, I remember being in Berkeley when uh, someone was being executed at San Quentin. And I, you know what? I don't even know who it was. I don't even remember. But someone got executed in San Quentin. And I remember, and there was a vigil being held somewhere that I attended. And, and I remember I was kind of torn about it. Because, you know, this guy had done some pretty awful things. And they killed him for it. And I remember when it was all over, and I thought, you know, this doesn't really change anything. It's just one more person dead. One more person gone. And I'm not meaning to get off on a thing here, except to say that something's wrong. We live in a world where something is out of kilter. And our version of justice is failing at putting it back into rightness. Our sense of justice, our sense of retribution doesn't quite accomplish what it claims to accomplish. It works this way. Someone comes here to our beautiful and sacred building and they break our windows and they scrawl awful things on our walls. And we call the police, and they arrest some kid, and they send him to jail. And there he sits, becoming a much better criminal than he ever was. Wallowing away with other criminals, and when he comes out, he's going to be a lot better at breaking windows and scrawling profanities and being outside of society. How is this serving the Kingdom of God? It doesn't. It's very unsatisfying. We are, f- are scared. We have no idea who this kid is or what his motivations were. And we never get that chance to end it, to satisfy it, to move on from it. It will always be a thing that hangs over us. A church, and I, I wish I had looked this up, but a, a church, another American Baptist church, had this exact same experience. And you know what they did? They went to the judge and they said, We we don't want him just sent to jail we want to do something else we would like to meet this young man we would like him it was a group of people we would like them to come and work in the church and you know fix the pro you know fix the window if they can't you know and do some work around the church and so they spent months doing stuff around the church you, you know, painting the over the profanity. But before that, what they did is they had an experience where they sat down together, and the people from the church were able to express. And it, this was all very controlled. I got to tell you, they, it wasn't done just willy nilly. They were there were. Counseling professionals in the room or mediation professionals in the room that that helped facilitate this so no one was going to get abused or anything, right? But they had this conversation about this is how this is how we felt after that happened And the young man had a chance to say I'm sorry And he spent several months they spent there were several of them they spent several months working with the people in the church to fix the church. And afterwards, these young men came and really expressed the incredible remorse they had and the incredible gratitude for the way they went about uh, bringing around justice. And this restorative justice was much more satisfying than anything our justice system could have ever produced. That church was no longer afraid. That church, and those boys were no longer just outside of that community looking in, but had been brought into that community in a way that was healing, in a way that returned them to wholeness. Now, I don't know that they didn't go out and, you know, do other stuff, but for that moment, there was reconciliation there was shalom there was peace that's the difference between the world we live in and the kingdom of God like the brother we live in a world where irresponsibility gets punished and responsibility is rewarded and in fact we hear a lot of this rhetoric in our politics we shouldn't just give away things people ought to have to work for it we shouldn't just you know whatever and yet as often is pointed out the kingdom of God is different in its approach and it's about restoration it's about reconciliation the point isn't punishment and reward it is restoring a relationship that has been severed it is about bringing back something that has been missing this little young man went off out into the world to embrace all of its vices and all of the negative things. Yet at home, here was a a family that was missing something. Something was gone. It was like a limb had been cut off. And when that young man came home and the father said, no, you belong here with us. It's like that limb had been sewn back on and they were whole again. That's justice. That's reconciliation. That's restoration. In other words, he was already, you know, and the, and the, the, older, father, the older brother failed to realize in his jealousy, in his resentment, that he, was, he already had the better part of the, of the bargain. And that he had been a part of this family and was nestled in it and restored already. And this young man's severing away from it brought its own kinds of punishment. And it was only by restoring the relationship that everything could be set right. In a way that subjugating him to servanthood never would have. The gospel at its heart is about this. It's about restoration. It's about recognizing the intrinsic value of all people and acknowledging that we are less when we are not seeing, even out of, even in our deepest enemies, the face of God. And when we are not embracing even those we have the least in common with when we are not embracing them as brothers and sisters, something is wrong, something is amiss, the world is not right. And Jesus came and begs us, pleads with us, to recognize this interconnection we have one to another. From those we love deepest, to those who we revile the most. And yet, when we dismiss them, or we resent them, or we push them away, we are severing an arm, and we are less than we should be in the kingdom of God. Abraham Lincoln said that the best way to destroy your enemy is to make him your friend. There's something to that. To deal with our fear, our greed, and our resentment, and our sense of of belonging to God when others don't. All of that goes away when we make an enemy a friend and a brother and a sister. And I believe at the heart of the gospel, this is what Jesus was about: connecting us one to another, and connecting us, reconnecting us with God. And so, as we look at this parable today, perhaps David Henson' his observation is accurate: to see God in the lowest character, the biggest sinner, and the worst enemy would point us toward a life of restoration of reconciliation, of shalom. I pray today as we hear this message that we would embrace a life that seeks that kind of restoration. Let us pray. God of peace, God of reconciliation, God who calls us to be in wholeness not only with You, but with each other. We come to you this morning and we open up our hearts to the message of the parables. May we continue to chew on what they mean in regards to the kingdom of God, recognizing that the kingdom of God doesn't look like the world we live in, and yet we are called to live it out together, even in this place. Help us to do so. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.